Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Cor de Terre Vineyard on January 15th, 2019. I'm here with Scott and Lisa Neal. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you. I'm going to start you off by asking, why wine? Why wine? Um, well, I'll, I'll start. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I was, uh, I, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, um, and I think the impetus to coming to Oregon was to um, get back to the farm, get back to growing, get back to being you know, connected to the, to the earth, to the place. Uh, and that's really one thing that I, I really, I guess, gained from my time as a farm kid in Minnesota, is I loved the dirt and the earth and growing things and, and seeing that kind of process of, you know, through the seasons. Um, and, you know, through our travels, um, I had met Lisa in Denver, uh, is where we came from in Colorado. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, wine was not a very important piece of my family's life. Um, if it wasn't in a gallon jug with a thumb screw, you know, and a big thing and sitting in the fridge for a month or two, um, that's not what my parents drank. That's, that was the stuff they had. So as a kid, wine to me was nothing that was anything special. Um, and then at one point I was working with a, a guy at, at a business that I was at and um, he was kind of a big wine guy. And he said, you know, and he kept talking about wine. I'm like, yeah, really wine's not that big of a deal. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, this is that bad, that's a bad stuff that tastes like vinegar that my parents drank. Um, but he said, no, 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 you gotta try this bottle of wine with me. And uh, it was a, a Stag's Leap Cast 23, 1987. Um, and he brought it out and I tasted it. I'm like, this is not the wine that I've had. <laughs> and so started getting more into wine. And as we kind of got into it, we started, uh, I guess, experiencing other types of wines. And we have a tendency uh, to kind of get into stuff and look at it and start diving into that kind of, I guess, down the, down the, the, the rabbit hole. And um, <clears throat> at one point, um, we had Pinot Noir and uh, uh, Burgundy specifically, mm-hmm. and started um, looking at that, kind of focusing on, on that Pinot Noir was really something special. Um, and uh, it all kind of coalesced. We had been married a couple years earlier. Um, at our wedding, we had uh, Pinot Noir at the wedding. Oregon Pinot Noir. Oregon Pinot Noir. With salmon, yes. W- which was strictly, um, not, nothing at that point like, boy, we have to have Oregon Pinot Noir. <laughs> we weren't at that point yet. It just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this kind of confluence of events that kind of was angling us to this wanting to get back to farming. Pinot Noir kept getting more and more important. Um, actually, and I had a job, I remember it was like 97, 96, something like that. Um, I had a job where I was actually an outside salesperson and I was covering Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I was here and Wine Spectator had just done an article, a cover article on Oregon wine. Yet, yes, Thing that's coming up and you know you never heard of it but Oregon has wine and so Lisa said why don't you spend an extra day and look around and you know because we were thinking like Denver's living in the suburbs is not our gig and that's not where we wanted to be um, so she said why don't you look around and and see if you know see what's out there so I spent a day looking around and and um, you know we had 
very, very little money. We had this little suburban house in, in suburban Denver. And um, <clears throat> I looked around and I saw that I like, you know what, I think we could actually afford to like buy something out here and, and move to Oregon. We didn't have any lot of like anchors holding us in Denver. We certainly had family and things, but um, we didn't have this like, you know, had to be there kind of thing. And we were young and stupid enough to, uh, to, to be able to do it. And, and, for, and fortunate. So unfortunate. <laughs> right. We sold like $130,000 starter home in Colorado and bought 50 acres down this muddy gravel road uh, for, what was it? I think they were asking like 310 or 315. We negotiated it down to 272,000, yep. which was so much for us. Sure. Like it was like, how are we going to pay this mortgage? Yeah, it's a very different story, I think, than than you know a lot of a lot of the other stories. We really wanted to be here. We went through the sacrifices to get here, and uh, but so fortunate that in that that everything kind of lined up for us in that time period mm -hmm. because times have definitely changed. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I mean, to to think that we could literally we were we came in in '98 Memorial Day of '98 after that original that original trip. Um, we decided let's go out and. And we decided we're going to move to Oregon. And the idea was in, the, in Memorial Day weekend of 1998, we're going to come to Oregon, get a feel for the place, find a place to rent in McMinnville while we found the right spot. Mm -hmm. That weekend, we were cruising around um, and literally just getting lost, getting a map of Yamhill County and driving down every road we could, visiting some wineries, uh, you know, Memorial Day being a big weekend mm -hmm. still even back then. Um, and at one point, we drove down Eagle Point Road, which is, as you saw this morning, it's out of the way. <laughs> and we literally saw a for sale sign at the bottom of this hill. That, and, and we had a compass, like a regular compass, not, there was no smartphones or anything. And it was a south-facing exposure. There was blackberries and poison oak growing on the land. Um, and we called the realtor because the people who owned it um, were away. And she said, yeah, just go ahead and walk the land. Um, there's a funny story about that, Lisa, I'm sure we'll share. Uh, that we walked the land and um, we bought it that weekend. We, Lisa, Lisa wrote up an offer on her laptop and when we were spending a day out in Newport, because uh, we wanted to go out to the coast too, wrote up an offer and it was accepted and uh, we moved in on Labor Day weekend of 1998. And we, but we, there, were, there were a lot of contingencies in place too, so yeah. it was contingent upon them being able to divide the property mm -hmm. and be able to get a residential permit down there. It was contingent upon our, the sale of our little starter home. There were all of these contingencies in place, but it was just like, you know, everything slowly just mm -hmm. fell into place and it was effortless. Sure. It was really, you know, and, and for, for me, I feel like when things are effortless like that, there, there is, you know, there's, you're in the flow. You're, it's meant to be. Meant to be and, right. Yes. Yeah, it's funny because we, and from that point where you wrote up the contract in Newport, we didn't see the land again until we moved in. <laughs> so it was this entire summer of pieces falling, dominoes and, and falling into a lot place. Of to people like Kevin Chambers, from, right. who used to own Oregon Vineyards, to come dig pits and, you know, septic had to, something was wrong with the, right, so the septic. Like, we, were just, we just kept cutting checks. And, sure. <laughs> and like, is this really going to happen? Yeah. And, and we literally loaded up a U-Haul trailer on Labor Day weekend of 1998. My dad and I drove the U-Haul the, the out. Lisa and her sister were in a car with a bunch of other stuff. And we landed here on September 1st and moved in. Yeah. And, and 
pretty amazing. Yeah. Kind of like, wow, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> Were there, was there, you, you, was there hesitation? Were there concerns you had when this idea first arose? Or was it pretty much like, hey, that's a good idea, let's try it? No, I think that Scott and I were of the similar mindset. So I grew up in Colorado and, you know, why wine for me? I had left Colorado, which, you know, is in the West and went on this big adventure that took me to, um, you know, Florida, South America, Washington, D.C. When I was in Washington, D.C., I worked uh, at a distributor and I had a friend there that worked for one of the wine distributors. So I was able to taste these wines that I would never be able to afford at that age. <laughs> and, um, but I knew that that was not my path to stay in D.C. doing what I was doing. And so I came back to Colorado to, you know, I refer to it as drowning in the fountain of family, which means really kind of mooch off of them until you can figure out what your next step is. <laughs> and so I was there and really, you know, was trying to figure out where I was going and what I was going to be doing. And, um, and then our paths crossed. And what was really interesting, you know, I thought wine called to me. Um, I wasn't really sure in what capacity mm -hmm. that I would find myself in the industry. But when our paths crossed, he was brewing beer in his basement and had like created this whole geeky, you know, uh, written software, you know, to his computer so that he could like completely control mash time and temperatures and everything like that out of this little cooler, mm -hmm. you know, so it was this, this, you know, pretty high tech setup for cooler beer. But, <laughs> but anyway, so he was brewing beer, he understood fermented sciences and grew up on a farm. And as I was growing up in Colorado, the city was not where I hung out. I was hiking 14,000 foot peaks with my friends to get out of town. Mm -hmm. And so that was always a calling. So when, we, when our paths crossed and you know, things started to evolve between all, us, and then we got married, it was just a decision that you know, sitting here, you know, Saturday and Sunday and having two days with each other and then him going this direction mm -hmm. and me going this direction and then trying to figure out like, oh, well, um, you know, how do you get a leg up in, in the world or whatever? And finally, we just started talking about it. And mm -hmm. I remember that, like he was on a business trip and it was, so one of my parents' dear friends got us a wine, uh, a wine club oh, for yeah. our wedding. Mm -hmm. And we would get Oregon right. Pinot Noir yeah, in, that, that. in that shipment. And, uh, and so we started drinking and kind of like investigating different wineries. And then, and then there was that huge spread mm -hmm. that, you know, it was like Ken Wright was in it, Doug Tunnell was in it, mm -hmm. like, and he had just gotten into the industry, like, you know, so that was very inspirational as well. I don't know that I've ever told Doug, like, how, wow, what an amazing story. And if he could do it, maybe we can do it. And, um, but yeah, so there were some really incredible, but how the Willamette Valley was really like the, the up and coming, the cool climate viticulture that, mm -hmm. you know, I feel is key to making beautiful wines. And um, anyway, uh, yeah, and I got the magazine and I called him immediately and I was like, stay another week. He says it like, oh, it was just like, oh, it was like, no, stay another day, you know, cook up with a realtor, see what land That's prices right. are and see if we can afford this because, mm -hmm. you know, this, this could be our next step. And that was the seed that got planted. Yep. And then everything we did over the next year. Yeah, at that what, point it was year, done. Yeah. yeah, we, I mean. We were in at that point. <laughs> we were already in it, yeah. As soon as he realized, like, you know, at that time, I want to say vineyard prices were around like 4,000 an acre. Yeah. And, um, you know, very, and then interestingly, he then started communicating with somebody with the tagline, uh, wine, wine something at Oregon. It was Scott Scholl. Yeah, it was Raptor Scott Scholl. Yeah. But what was his, so he started week? communicating with him yeah. because it was like Oregon wine was like his tag or something. And so he started communicating with Scott Scholl and they built this friendship yeah. from a distance. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, it's funny because I would be emailing all sorts of people, like mm -hmm. any email I could get, and most of them, you know, like, hey, and yeah, no, whatever. But he, <laughs> Scott, if you know Scott at all, he's very thorough. And he, I'd sent him a quick little email. He sent me back a, a very thorough dissertation, as Scott will do. Um, and I'm like, which is Scott. so beautiful. Yeah. And I'm like, my gosh, this guy spent, you know, I asked him this question from afar in Denver. And he sends me back this very well thought out, spent time on for somebody he didn't know. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. So, um, yeah, so we built this relationship, like our, you know, an email relationship. And I remember um, when we came here in, when we found this place, we went to Yamhill County Soils Department, mm -hmm. got a soil map printed out. It showed Willa Kenzie soils and all this stuff at the time. And it's different than that, but it, that's what it showed. South facing exposure. It was Memorial Day weekend and he was pouring at what's now the Dundee Bistro, mm -hmm. but the Dundee Bistro was just an empty, flat, concrete slab with walls at that point. There was it just no been, restaurant, been built. there was no kitchen, like, and you know, it was just, yeah, yeah. so there were, they had a few winemakers that were in there pouring okay. wines. And yeah, and, and we came with this thing, Scott, what do you think, you know? <laughs> Here's my map, what do you think of this place? Give me, you know, give me the, the blessing that this would be great. And he's like, I'm a winemaker, man. <laughs> I don't do soils, um, but um, so we, that's when we got Kevin Chambers to like look at it, and I remember Kevin said, if you don't buy it, I will, because it's a great spot, um, and uh, yeah, we bought it that but weekend. But real quickly, though, what was also very interesting is that before we found this property, we found a very oh, yeah. small piece that became uh, kitty corner to where Bergstrom is now. Mm. And it was 14 acres, filberts, it had a tiny little house on it, it's, it's just above Adelsheim. And Adelson was just building that winery. Mm -hmm. Just had just built it, and yeah. And they had just planted the vines back up behind. And so the guy that was selling it, who was asking a lot of money for it, um, he said, well, go down and talk to Roland. He's down at Argyle. You know, go down there. He, he used to own this property. I'm sure he's got great things to say. And uh, we went down, walked into the, the, the house, you know, and uh, uh, here he came up front. and. He was so, I mean, everybody was so generous, right? Yeah. With their time and their energy. And he sat and he says, well, kids, he says, I know what I sold that property to that guy for. He says, head west, <laughs> get out of town, head west. This is where you're gonna find, you know, you know, head, head west. And so that's what we did as we started heading into the McMinnville foothills. And yeah, if it wasn't for Lisa, we would have bought that place. Yeah, Be no, I didn't want it. And he, and he wanted it because it would be closer to the airport because he was still traveling for work. Sure. And, and, uh, but then when we found this, I was like, 50 acres. And not only that, but this feels like it's so much more than 50 acres mm -hmm. because it's got these beautiful steep ravines mm -hmm. and, you know, it was wooded. It was, you know, it was, uh, it was, I mean, definitely off the beaten path, mm -hmm. but, but uh, I think we've been able to make that work with, you know, the energy that we put into it. Sure. And yeah, well, I remember when Roland said that, he said, go west. I'm like, isn't that what they told people to go on the Oregon Trail, <laughs> right? Go west, young man. I'm like, that's like got to be the thing we got to do. So, I mean, at the time when we came out here, this is the, now the McMinnville AVA, it was not. Mm -hmm. um, there were so many people like saying, oh, you can't grow grapes out there. It was, it was like, it was like the, you know, next to Alaska, mm -hmm. you know, it's so cold out there, you can't. It's, it's not. Um, there's certainly in our AVA, there's, there's warmer and cooler spots, but um, it was definitely the frontier at that time, which I thought was kind of cool too. Yeah. That, one reason why we could afford it. It wasn't considered, you know, the the 
premier spot. The 902 window right. of Oregon <laughs> yeah. industry. Yeah. You know, so Mesa was just being developed. Uh, they weren't really even defined yet. Um, Yamhill Valley obviously they is the here. oldest winery mm -hmm. in the area. And then Coleman Vineyard, mm -hmm. yeah. which they were not making wine yet. Eric Hamaker and the Ponzi's, I think, were taking that fruit. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was, so we were, it wasn't like you could go, okay, so we're gonna plant vines here and you can taste a wine from next door. Sure. And you're like, I feel confident that our wines are going hmm. to be. So it was just like, you know, take the dice, you know, <laughs> and roll it. Um, but there was always such a wonderful feel about the property and the ability, you know, kind of a clean slate. All it had ever been before was uh, they'd run cattle. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, they're nothing. I mean, it was, it was uh, pristine. And, and to close that loop on Scott Shull and, and Annie, um, when we moved in, we planted Rennell's block, our oldest block, um, uh, in the spring of 99. And for six, six weekends in a row, Scott and Annie came over and helped plant that vineyard. And the Allworths came and helped also. Allworths came and people just pitched in. And then we would help him at Harvest and Crush, so we would go over and we, you know, his little, he had a little hand bottler that he was working with and we bottled and their destemmer was like this yeah, big. Little Zambelli. And so we would like take buckets and then we'd pass it up and somebody'd be standing on a, and then they'd, they'd <laughs> dump it into this little tiny destemmer and that was how, that was how it all began. Like for them and for yeah. us, like we made our wine that way for the first time over there in this little horse barn back behind us. <laughs> yeah, and now, you know, I'm on the OPC board with Scott and Annie's on the Lime Valley Wineries board with, with me on that. and. It's pretty cool to see that we're still, you know, well, all doing it. Well, and when we finally broke ground for this, it was like they were, you know, oh, yeah. of course, come make your wine here because mm -hmm. they kept growing, obviously, and they'd bust the place at the seams. And the next thing you know is it'd be like they'd be looking for a larger spot. Mm -hmm. And and I, I helped them. I helped them find their property. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it yeah. Was, we're inter intertwined. Intertwined. No Our lives are intertwined in a very deep level. But um, so grateful, so grateful for them mm -hmm. and for the industry and. You know, back then you could, I remember sitting and having a conversation with Dick Erath at some party, right? And I didn't know who he was. <laughs> you know, didn't recognize him, the name and everything, but I remember like when we were talking about, no, we're gonna plant our vineyard. And it was Jerry, uh, Jerry, Cush uh -huh. Jerry Cushard. Cushard, Cushard Vineyard? Or, yeah, yeah, no. And uh, <laughs> Jerry, and so all of the old guys, the, yeah. it was the old school of Dundee, mm -hmm. right? And it was some party that we'd gotten invited to and we sat there. And they were all, all the all the you know the old guard were sitting there going, you kids want to spend your savings this way yeah. and your money this way and like every hard-earned penny this way, and it was like yeah pretty. But they couldn't talk us out of it. I remember we were at an Oregon uh, wine the growers meeting big. once in at Elber's Mill in oh. Portland, and Myron was oh, there. Myron got a hold of us. And yeah. Myron's like Myron from Amity, uh -huh. and Myron's like, kids, do you know how many people get divorced in this industry? <laughs> do you really understand what you're doing? Are you insane? And I'm like. Wow, this guy's calling me insane. <laughs> <laughs> but he couldn't talk us out Myron of it. Is the best, Myron's though. awesome. I love, love, love Myron. Myron mm. is like that uncle in the industry. Mm. So, like, you have the fathers, but he's like that really great uncle, right? That knows just as much, but just approaches it and mm -hmm. is approachable in so many lovely ways. Such and a good guy. We, you know, I think we, we, we reached out to him a lot and, mm -hmm. and uh, talked to him a lot and Scott Scholl and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just the guiding hand of, you know, each, each um, wave that comes and how they help lift mm -hmm. those that are new into the industry to find their way, and it's very mm -hmm. lovely, yeah. 
you guys were right at the at the time when you, you were kind of among the first to kind of come in from the outside and start mm-hmm. the sort of second generation of Oregon wine. I'm curious what that means to you and now as you look at, you're looking back, it's now been a little while. So what does it mean to you to have come in at that time? Well, it's the only time we could have gotten into this. I think that, wow, I've never heard anybody say that or refer to us as the second generation, because that's an honor, really. Mm-hmm. To be a part of this industry in any way, shape, or form is such an honor. Um, you know, the people, the energy, um, the commitment, um, and how, how lucky we are to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, too, there was a great, there was great learning and um, transformation that was happening in the industry in the industry when we came along. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were people that were were grafting their own vines, which I think prior to that, a lot of people were grow, you know they they would purchase the vines coming in through OBS mm-hmm. or I know Mark Benoit uh, or Benoit, however they choose to pronounce it, but um, Mark uh, um, he he was involved in bringing some of the plant material up and. Uh, but yeah, so we there were sources at the time that were dabbling in grafting, and then two regarding the clones <coughs> and what to plant. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, I had a strong desire to plant own rooted here because mm-hmm. I felt as though we were remote enough that um, that that could be a possibility. But then Scott, you know, we did the research and kind of dove deep into not just our history but also history of France and California, and decided that we were going to. Um, to uh, to go that direction of grafting, but so to find the source of Susie Gagne, who used to be the winemaker at Airly, and unfortunately she's no longer with us, but she um, she was grafting, mm-hmm. and so we would go down and um, spend time with her, and she would show us everything. And back in the day, this was back when classes at Chemeketa were not um, uh, you couldn't earn college credit for them. Uh, Lowell Ford, mm-hmm. who now has a winery mm-hmm. and a vineyard with his family, is such a lovely man, a best man, and. So I just like, of course, landed here, had no idea what I was doing. So I enrolled in like these, you know, they were, they were Oregon wine classes mm-hmm. and they would bring people in to discuss viticulture. So it wasn't necessarily focused in any direction. Um, always wine was brought and we would be drinking at the end of the class. Um, he would, uh, he would also bring in, um, he would also bring in, um, Different speakers like uh, Mary from Airly. Mm-hmm. She has a great business background, and so she would come in and basically reveal, like, you know, the finances of the wine industry. Which you're like, okay, <laughs> wow, all right. So we're gonna have to do this in <laughs> different ways. So, um, and uh, anyway, it was really, and, and then we would go graph, or we would go prune people's vineyards. Um, I've pruned Meredith Mitchell vineyards for free, and. Uh, was over at Willamette Valley Vineyards when Joe Dobbs was the winemaker and got to taste my first whole cluster mm-hmm. uh, where they had started, they, they had it and they were icing it, but it had just started to ferment. So you bit into it and it was like this, you know, like a frozen wine treat of Ooh. some sort. Yeah, that still had some sugar in it. And anyway, that was my first opportunity to meet Joe Dobbs. And uh, I mean, it was just, you went and you learned and you gleaned information. And, people were willing to share it with you and what they were doing and you know uh, being able to witness from from we were all kind of like trying to figure our way together mm-hmm. and then what clones and what rootstocks and uh, what would work best and you know so our first block Rennell's block was just a big experiment and I remember um, Sam Tannehill telling me after it was a 
the after party at IPNC telling me that riparia galore, right? That's, that's the rootstock to go with. Well, it's really great in the Red Hills of Dundee, but on the clays that we have out here in, in you know, the McVinville AVA, I don't know that we need to devigorize the vine. <laughs> I don't know that, that we need to have it ripen earlier. But so there's some, there's some um, rows of riparia galore. There's 101, 14, 3309. And then we kind of played around with all of the clones in that first block also. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, and I think that's kind of, that set the standard as we moved forward. We were never coming in with the mindset of that, you know, we need to plant all, you know, uh, Dijon 115 or all Pomard or, you know, Vadensville and separating it from the blocks. Mm -hmm. We then decided that as we moved forward, we wanted to emulate what was truly unique about this site beneath the soil. So um, we have these beautiful, this beautiful diversity of soils here in, in our little, well, now just under 100 acres. Yeah, so we've been fortunate enough to be able to buy the neighboring property. So from the original estate, but yeah. yeah. As a second generation, I, I would say, uh, and, and I've heard that referred to before, and I always find it like, boy, that sounds like I'm old <laughs> a little bit. Um, but I, what I look at that as, um, our, our, the, the guys who founded this industry had, a, had great foresight of, of working together, of this kind of um, dedication to one varietal, which is extremely mm -hmm. unique in the new world. Um, and to honesty and purity in wine. Um, and I guess what I would look at as a second generation, that particular piece means to me that, that we need to um, honor what our founders have done and ensconce that mentality for future generations and make sure that we are setting a standard that continues to persist beyond. Mm -hmm. um, so to me as that kind of next wave would be to take um, what was started as this amazing foundation and um, solidify it for the foreseeable future. Sure. So that's really, that is something that's important to me. So let's back up a step here and talk about you. You've now made the purchase. You've had all the contingencies fall into place. You're it's Labor Day '98. You're in Oregon. What happens next? What happens next? Um, like I said, we drive the the U-Haul trailer. We show up here, um, pitch black night, coyotes howling, uh, and uh, a little house down at the bottom of the hill that looked a lot cuter when it had uh, furniture in it. <laughs> and um, so we dug in and. Like I said, the first year we, uh, so, so I remember we, Lisa was mentioning grafting, self-grafting. First year we, we called up Joel Meyer and said, Joel, he was working with Duarte Vineyard and said, okay, I want to plant these vines in this, you know, three acres of Rennell's block. So we put together the order. The whole idea was kind of, I think, Pollyanna-ish a little bit was, let's get all these different clones, let's get these different rootstocks, see what works on our vineyard so we can plant the rest of it to that. Um, you know, we're just starting to find out now really what works probably. So, you know, that whole idea of like, oh, in two years we'll know what works. Um, the, the timeline wine is much longer than that, <laughs> as I learned. Um, but, so I put this order in and it was a big number, big dollar figure for us. These um, 5,000 vines or whatever we bought. Mm -hmm. And we're like, how are we gonna pay for this? And, but I had these visions, like I could, I remember like, you know, thinking like Joel says, you know, okay, they're gonna be here in a month. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be such a great day, right? This is gonna be the semi truck pulling in with this, you know, 
thousands of plants the following spring and it's right. rainy yeah uh, you're walking up the hill and there's like 10 pounds of mud on each foot and yeah and we're, and we're prepping so we were, we're prepping right this, we're, where Renault's block was going <laughs> and we're trying to lay out the you know where you know how to how to lay how the vines will be laid out and and so Scott's down at the bottom of the hill and I'm like huffing it up to the top of the hill and then he'd say something and I couldn't hear him <laughs> And then I'd be like, what? So we're like yelling because it like kind of crossed and comes over. And then I'd have to like halfway walk back down to hear what he's saying. I'd be like, okay, huff back up. And, you know, that was how we, we were laying it out, preparing yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's funny because, yeah. It, it, and at the time we thought we were kind of like um, out in the middle of nowhere. And, and the person we bought from, they, they split the property and they live across the way down on the valley floor. And, you know, it, it wet, tired. Well, and we had to take a tree down, so we, we, we took that down ourselves. Some spirited people, maybe. Sometimes things, you know, would get said. And we're thinking, ah, oh, we're in the middle of nowhere, no big deal. Uh, <laughs> so then I remember we had dinner over at their place one night, or lunch, or maybe, and, yeah. and we had a vineyard guy working at that time, and he was literally just talking like this, and we could hear him like he was, like, across, like, 10 feet away. Yeah. And we're like... So you guys kind of heard all that stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, we didn't know if you're gonna make it. <laughs> and then Myron's words came resonating. Yeah, right here goes Myron. Specter of Myron. Uh, so yeah, so we made it though. Yeah. And you know, so and and it's still we can see. So I we put together this cable to lay out the vineyard lines, and you can still see that Lisa and I did it because the rows are a little curvy, not quite all the same spacing, but it's got the most character. Yes, it does. Um, so so we, uh, we, we ordered those plants from Joel and again I remember like it's going to be this, I'm thinking it's going to be huge, right? Like trucks, semi-trucks are going to pull in. He pulls in with a field bin in the back of his pickup, dumps them off and I'm like, okay, so where's the rest? He goes, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, and they were sticks, dead looking sticks. I'm like, oh my God, how much was this? <laughs> and and uh, he said, oh yeah, no problem. We'll stick them in the ground. <laughs> They'll grow. And we're like, that's insane. They'll never grow. They were like, yeah. and they did. Well, and it was interesting too, because we had, so we spent that spring planting mm -hmm. and Scott and Annie came on the weekends, but we were like, you know, every day, we were like <clears> every day. Them and, um, you know, it was really important to me that I do this mycorrhiza dip on mm -hmm. the root system, even though I had no idea, you know, as you walked our, our property, you know, we have an abundance of wild strawberries, which is a, a clear sign that you have plenty of mycorrhiza in the soils. Um, but uh, anyway, and then we attended, they used to call it Grape Day. Uh -huh. So we went to Grape Day, and there were this, um, this group of Frenchmen that had come right. from Burgundy, and they brought this gentleman with him. He's the East Indian, English-speaking uh, uh, translator, but he was also the doctor of viticulture at the Wine Institute in Dijon, Burgundy. And so somehow, like after the talks and everything, they would ha always have this really lovely dinner, and then there'd be <coughs> wines people would bring to share. And uh, we, we got to sit and talk with Bernard, and Bernard was in awe of the fact, and just shocked, quite frankly, that we had bought bare ground, and we were developing our own vineyard here. And what a gift it was to be at our age and to be able to do this, because he said it's unheard of where, they, where he comes from. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. And so somehow, you know, well, most people really love Scott when they meet him, no, but he you. fell in love. It was you. <laughs> anyway, so he invites us. He's like, well, you must come to the Mecca of Pinot Noir and you must come. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, the next day I'm like, yeah. we'd all been enjoying some wine and, you know, people say things. And, 
I mean, it was later that afternoon he emailed us and said, I've spoken to my wife, Lison, and yes, yes, you must come and you must stay with me. And the next thing you know is we had booked a, so it was in September, like, so it was right before their harvest and crush. And uh, we booked a flight and put it on the credit card. Yep. And we went to Burgundy to see him. And it was almost like when he was getting, when, you know, because he was going to come pick us up from the train station. It's like, are we going to remember what he I looks like? I remember that. I was like, <laughs> like, do you remember what he looks like? Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. and Bernard is such a lovely soul. Such like, a good such guy. Such an incredible human being. So he picks us up, he, we, you know, uh, takes us off to his home, his lovely wife Lison, and each night we would, she would cook these incredibly either French meals or East Indian meals, and because he was part of the, the wine institute, uh, they make wine every year, and so he had the cellar, and he would die down, and he'd pull bottles, and then we would come up and have these the most beautiful conversations about wine, mm -hmm. about viticulture. He was doing a lot of research, like in, at Volnay Lafage, and he was doing research for um, Domaine Drouin, uh, for homeopathy or like, like uh, experiments with silica in the vineyard and biodynamic mm. uh, research at the time. So he would send us off and we would go wander and do our own thing and then we would meet him back around two, three and he would have set up some special, so we come walking into Domaine Drouin and Veronique, right before Harvest and Crush, right? You know they're really busy. Mm -hmm. Veronique comes and goes, yes, yes, come, come. And we Spends go down into the, you know, to their massive cellars under the entire town of bone and there's a wall there that's you know a thousand years before christ and yeah the um, romans and there's these massive tours happening <laughs> and here we are little old us <laughs> being treated like royalty mm -hmm. like we were you know i don't know no, veronica was, was amazing and then she pulled bottles because she wanted to give us a clear picture of all of the coats so she would say, would you like to taste? And it was like, oh, so she opened up like six bottles mm -hmm. of wine. We tasted them and then she sent them with us and she spent, I mean, it was just such a gift. And then the following day it was at Volney Lafage and we got to sit there and look at uh, one, two, three, I think it was four generations, mm -hmm. four generations of winemakers that, you know, you walk into the garage, you go upstairs, that's their home. Mm -hmm. You take the elevator down and it's the cellars and it's like this black, dark, musky smelling where all the wine is aged and um, and then also to tour their vineyards because of the homeopathy or the, mm -hmm. the, the biodynamic research that was occurring there as well. And it was such a gift and such an eye-opener. So you have to understand, we had just left here with 10 pounds of mud on each foot as we're huffing <clears> up <throat> into the hill, planting these sticks that I was like, I don't know if these are ever gonna grow. Like are these, and we had just, we had just, like our last money went to that. In fact, mm -hmm. while we were in Europe, we ran out of money. And we, like, we, we went to go like use something and we ran out of money. And I remember Scott's like, no, no, my paycheck is due to be deposited. So it's like tomorrow, it, like, tomorrow so we're okay. <laughs> so I remember like we took what little money we had in our pocket. And this, at this point we kind of popped over to Italy on a train we had our backpacks and stuff. And, and I remember like just going into the store and like we picked a baguette, we got a bottle of wine, we got some with salami. With the cash that we had. Yeah, with what little cash we had. And then we hopped bottle on the train to go back to uh, Bernard's house because he, he was like, he loved us so much. He was like, well, when you come back through, you must stay. Even if it's just tonight, you know. And, and he had moved. Yeah, he moved houses. <laughs> In between. <laughs> but he still was just like, come, come. And I remember that was the night he made his special tender yep. chicken yep. for us. That was amazing, yeah. But, uh, and then I came back so like, we, you know, it's like, oh, uh, we, we're, can do we're, this. we can do it. Oh my gosh, we can totally do this. And, and what a gift. And that, no, of course they're going to grow, right? <laughs> and so it just, it was just this, 
you, 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 you were able to bathe in the, the heritage and the, the, um, the ancient song of the vine in Burgundy that just sang so bright in my heart when I came back mm -hmm. here to our own property. And I remember how, that was a cool, that was how it was very refreshing to come back and mm -hmm. you looked at things through a different lens at that point. Yep. Once you had established your vineyard here, did you, did, had you always intended to have a winery? Was it always the intent to have what you have now, or did you kind of come to that step by step? I, I say yes, and it's, and it's funny, we used to walk around the property a lot when there was nothing. It was just, we had- And when we had no money. No we money. afford to go yeah. to dinner, so we would, and the house was really hot, it had no insulation. <laughs> so I'd pack a picnic bag, and we were a picnic, and then we'd bring some wine, and we would huff it all the way from the bottom of the hill, and this was, you know, this, none of this was here. The pond wasn't here, the vines weren't here, this wasn't here. And when we go sit up in the trees up over on this hill and look to the, you know, look to the right and say, oh, you know, I think I could see a winery over mm -hmm. here. Wouldn't it be really lovely to have a pond over there? And I mean, and it was really quite incredible that you only can truly understand when you've had that, that that lengthy time period that the wine industry always seems to offer you. Yeah, and it's there. I mean, we'd literally, it was, we'd sit up on the hill up there and say, yeah, the winery, and well, that's where the winery is. And look at that little kind of area over there. It looks like a perfect spot for a pond. And uh, we're, Lisa mentioned grafting. We grafted all our own vines after the original block from that. We learned how to graft from Susie, who was an amazing person. Um, but we needed a source to water them because we'd plant them green growing. So we put the pond in and irrigated those original vines off of that. And yeah, and there's going to be a block here and a block here. And uh, that's the way it is now. And it's pretty amazing. You know, it's, it's interesting is that it, it's that, you know, long years, but you know, or long days, but short years kind of mm -hmm. idea where the days would be very long sometimes, like, is this ever going to get done? And then you look back 20 years later, it seems like it's kind of flashed by, and you look out and it's, it's, it's kind of here, which yeah, is neat. And it, and it makes me think of, too, just like when we first bought the property, I remember being down in the little house, and, you know, if, if the time wasn't being spent outside kind of prepping, the time was inside the house to make it, you know, more, you know, enjoyable for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember hearing a knock on the side of the door, and I opened it up, and uh, it was Jimmy Brooks. Mm. And Jimmy had been helping out over at May Sarah, and he was like, gosh, do you know who bought this property? He goes, because I had my eye on it for the longest time, and do you know, it looks like they're developing it into vineyard. And I was like, well, yes, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so I threw on some boots, and we went and walked the land with, with Jimmy, and then when Jimmy was solidified over at May Sarah, you know, he would invite us over and it was like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, they'd have the ATVs and we would just like zip all over that property and, you know, up the steep hills and back to see the big, you know, I, I think it's more of a lake than a pond, but, you know, <laughs> and I remember going back and spending time there and then we also were spending time checking out their grafting operation mm -hmm. to um, then Eric Kamaker and Eric Lemelson. So we had been to a party at one point where Eric Kamaker had sat next to us and he was like, wow, I love the McMinnville ABA. And he was like, you know, can I set up an appointment to bring a friend over and come take a look at your land? And I was like, yeah. He brought Eric Lemelson with him. So that, the, you know, the four of us are walking the property and it was like, you know, they were like, well, you should take this hillside back here and build a winery into that hillside. And I, and the whole conversation, and then it was like, well, you know, and you should plant every hillside yeah. here. And, and Scott's like, well, what would you farm that with? And he goes, oh, a crawler. 
But I mean, like, so all I'm hearing is just dollar signs. <laughs> like, you know, okay, yeah. Your guys' perspective might be a little different than ours. Right, right, right. But, uh, but either way, I mean, it's... We done it. Yeah, it's ours, and it's our, it's our style, and I think that um, I love the diversity of the clones within the blocks because, for me, it's more about really emulating the beauty of the diversity of the soils here. And, um, you know, we do bottle four of the blocks uh, separately, and, you know, when you release them, there are these nuances that clearly define, you know, they're, they're, they're different tasting wines. Same general oak profile, same same winemaker, same same vintage, mm -hmm. but but these little nuances that come through in a different way that just mm -hmm. you know, and that's that's what I that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to really um, because the geology and the the beauty, how some sites are more vigorous and some sites are a little more devigorizing to the vine. Um, I think it's a really beautiful tour through. The, the wine through through the varietal of Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we have you know volcanic, we have sedimentary soils. We've got all of these differences, uh, elevations, exposures. We have this. It's not this you know kind of hillside. It's undulating, and it's got you know Abbey's block is different than Tallulah's, and it's amazing. And and the way we farm it, where we farm it organically, we try to be, um, I guess, minimally handling things as much as we can. I'd say we're fairly intense in the vineyard from uh, making sure that we're allowing it to grow well uh, and then minimally handling in the winery so that what we're trying to do is transcend that place into the bottle. And what's cool is like the Evernell's block and even though the vintages are clearly different vintages, you can see that line run through that it's Rennell's block. It has a signature that goes through every year. Sarah Jane's, Tallulah's, Abbey's, same thing. And it's amazing to taste like verticals and horizontals, right? You taste like a, a cross vintages of a single block and you can tell it's the same thing with different kind of nuances to it. Or you do a, a horizontal of a vintage across the different blocks. You can tell it's the same year, but you can tell they all have their individual personality. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool. It's really amazing. Pinot Noir is singular in that way that it shows that. And that's the beauty of Pinot. I was just gonna ask, what is it about Pinot to you that is so captivating? Well, it's nuanced, it's um, subtle, it shows its place, it shows how it was grown. Um, you know, it's interesting, I, I've never made any other red wine, well, I guess I've made Syrah from here too, but I mean, Pinot Noir is what I've made. That's, we came here, I start, we started growing it and started making it, learning from neighbors like Stephen Carey helping, you know, kind of get ideas of how it works for, for McMinnville AVA to handle it. I remember the first wine I made off this property, it was unbelievably undrinkable and tannic and monstrous. And, and so we figured out minimally addressing our wines are best. Uh, so it, Pinot Noir, is, it's about that time and place. It's about that it shows through in the bottle how it was handled, um, in the cellar how it was handled. And um, you know, our wine, you can't make Corte de Terre wine anywhere else but here. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing that um, you know, I love, you know, beautiful wines from all these different Pinot Noirs and different expressions, but you can't have that singular Corte Terre wine except from here. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's what Pinot Noir does. And to me, I think that for uh, Pinot Noir, it is the, the um, expression of the feminine in, you know, from the earth. Uh, all of the characteristics and qualities of Pinot Noir are so beautifully feminine. And, um, 
you know, I think that that's the draw to it, is that, you know, a good Pinot Noir reveals itself to you very slowly. And, um, you know, there's different si styles of femininity, right? I know that Ken Wright talks about Marilyn Monroe and, and Audrey Hepburn, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's this feminine expression from, from the earth that I just think is such a gift and, mm -hmm. um, and differences between where and where it's grown, how it's made, but still I think it always holds that truly feminine quality. Yeah. You mentioned farming organically mm -hmm. uh, and sustainably. I'm curious, what, what brought you down the, the path of organic, sustainable farming? Lisa did. <laughs> yeah, I'm a tree cutter from Colorado, you know, spending my time hiking 14 peaks and, you know, to be here and to be a part of this human experience in, in this setting is such a true, true gift. And so <clears throat> if you don't take care of it, right? And so, um, and it's been, you know, on the, from the onset, we were organic. Um, I know that at times we would continue to spray Roundup as needed, uh, but we've now shifted completely away even from glyphosate, which um, we have to start making evolutionary choices. And it can't come down to, well, you know, uh, the, the bottom line. It has to come from a standpoint that we've got to take care of what we've got, uh, because if we're not going to do it, uh, then it's, it's not going to be there. It will certainly change into something that may not be mm -hmm. as beautiful of an experience to, to be a part of. And mm -hmm. so, um, and I love, now I've kind of dove in down this whole rabbit hole with, um, there's a gentleman in McMinnville who uh, I, I worked with to help put in native gardens at like our little Montessori school in mm -hmm. McMinnville. And <clears throat> so I've been going into the forest now and um, kind of rehabilitating the forest, the oak savannas, trying to find that beautiful diversity, trying to keep the blackberries at bay. And the dug fir obviously are something that maybe over time we'll have to start moving away from because of their shallow root system in general. But, you know, looking to, to get some of those out that have gone to drought. Uh, we've lost to drought mm -hmm. conditions. But, um, you know, there's, it's, it, there's, uh, there's stewardship of the land that I think you take the responsibility of when you step into uh, being, a, you know, a quote-unquote farmer and anybody who wants to look at this any differently. You know, it's so glamorous. It's like, yeah, no, it's farming. It's definitely farming. And so being, being able to, to step in and take that responsibility of being a good steward, I think, mm -hmm. is important. Yeah, when I was a kid in Minnesota, there wasn't a chemical you couldn't throw at something to, <laughs> to, to take care of it, right? Sure. Um, and, and I can tell you at that time, it wasn't, farmers weren't doing that in Minnesota like, boy, let's just make money. It was, they thought it was the best thing. And at the time, they were doing what their best ideas of what they thought were good for the soil. There, there's no better environmentalist than a farmer because they live their land, their land is their source of livelihood and they, there's nobody closer to it. Um, but my perspective back in the day, you know, in the 70s was, you know, you know, there's atrazine, boy, that stuff, you can get, get rid of your weeds, spray that, it's really bad stuff. Um, and we've learned, so I've evolved through the help of <laughs> Sometimes pulling a bias. We're, we're, we're here now. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and it does. It actually, um, by growing organically, it does allow that transparency of the place to come through better too. Um, and it allows the fact that um, you know, the more you manipulate, the more you add, the more that's gonna show because Pinot Noir is transparent. Um, and the less you add, it shows more of that, that place and that what it is. So. So it's, it's been very good for the winemaking, no doubt about it. So to, to 
follow up on that, what does it mean to you to, to, what does sustainable farming mean to you? What does it mean to you to make wine sustainably? Um, well, I, th I, so sustainable to me is a term that is, um, exceedingly broad and it means something different to everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, to, to me, sustainable means, um, looking at it as a whole ecosystem, not as sustainable means we don't spray Roundup. That's not what it means to me. It means this whole ecosystem that we're creating here, which goes certainly the plants and, and the farming, but to um, the people, you know, making sure that, that um, the people that are here are treated respectfully um, and um, are treated in a manner that they can be sustainable in their lives that we tell the truth so that our story is sustainable, that our place can be here better than when we came. Um, and it's just this, and I think all of that, I'm not a biodynamic guy, but I do think all of that stuff resonates mm -hmm. together, mm -hmm. which is, is tripping very closely to the biodynamic thing, right? Um, I'm a believer in biodiversity. Yeah. All of that does resonate together and does come through in the final wine. Mm -hmm. um, which again is that, that dynamism, that idea of that intentionality does show. And I, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's a very broad thing to me. And I think I look at it as when you make decisions that you have to really not just thinking about I'm going to do this to get that, but you got to think about that, you know, the butterfly effect and that whole kind of ramifications that happens of you know, when I do something, when I walk in my vineyard, I am creating an event that does something. You know, when I drive a tractor, we're doing something. Um, so that try to think about that ramification on this more holistic scale. Uh, and you know, I I'm, consequences and yeah. intended consequences as well. Yeah, right? with your choices and yeah. kidding myself if I think I know all of it, but trying to think of it in a whole perspective, I think helps mm -hmm. to get to that point of maybe understanding at some point. Mm -hmm. And the more we learn, I think the the less I know. So I don't know. I, I agree with that. I think that each season that reveals itself, it's that. There's, there's such a, a beautiful lesson in, of humility um, in the wine industry. And uh, you have to acquiesce to you know, Mother Nature in so many ways. And um, I think that's been such a, such, at least for me, an incredible gift that's been given, is that lesson of humility mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, stepping out of the knowing and stepping into the unknown, I think is also a really beautiful place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one thing I hope our kids can learn is that um, you do the best you can, but at some times, you know, there things happen and that you have to be able to adjust and don't try to fight things, but try to go with them and, and work with them versus I'm going to bend this to my will of let's like work together to get to the place where we all should be. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a good lesson. It's a lesson that farming and wine teaches, there's no doubt about it. Yes. We, we don't, we don't uh, gauge things by like what happened this quarter. We gauge things by decades, I think, you know. Yeah, so, you know, from a business perspective, I don't know that our model is the one to follow. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that we always used our hearts to follow the direction that we needed to go. And if that meant that 
you know, you're giving somebody a raise, but you're taking out of your own pocket to do that. Um, that is the sustainability of what we do at Corte Terra, is making sure that everybody is taken care of. Um, because I, I too believe wholeheartedly that it, it ends up in the finished product mm -hmm. and it ends up with the overall, I, I think it just reson it resonates out and then it comes back to you mm -hmm. in such wonderful ways. And, um, and, and that's one thing that um, I, you know, I, I think that is, uh, it's an important thing that we need to look at as an industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. So let's talk about the business side of the industry. Everyone's favorite, favorite topic to uh. talk about. <laughs> You talked about kind of learning it at Chimekin or kind of getting the kind of the general like crazy business uh, plan of, of wine there. Um, as you started your, your down your path, what were the challenges you had to deal with when it came to business? Was it business of wine? So there's a rule of three in the wine industry. <laughs> I'm convinced. And um, from my experience, there's a rule of three. So when <clears throat> Scott and I decided that we were going to do this, and you know, Scott's a really smart guy, right? And um, so we ran numbers and everything, and it was like, well, if we sell this and then we buy this and yes the house is not necessarily the greatest thing but you know you, know, you have to figure like it, it, once we get this up and once the vines come in we'll have this much money coming in and then we can fix the house up or we can build a new house and um, but what I realized is everything is multiplied by three so you take the amount of money that you thought it was going to cost and you multiply that by three and this is annual. It's not like in the big scheme mm -hmm. of things. I'm guessing we've spent a lot more than times three in what we've, Most you know, likely. if you impact, like, or if you add up everything that we spent in the full, you know, 20 plus years that we've been here. Mm -hmm. um, that if you if you think it's going to take a certain amount of time, take that time frame and multiply it by three. <laughs> if you think a job that you're going to do, like, oh, well, you know, we'll dig this pond. It'll take us, you know, a couple of weekends take that, multiply it by three, and that's actuality. So um, that's, that's my opinion on it. Yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's absolutely true. Um, so, so from the business perspective, the only way we could have done this is we did it through sweat equity. Um, we, um, and this is a little bit of, of my mentality, it's my Scottish nature. Um, of, which means he's cheap. And which means I'm cheap. <laughs> but also we couldn't afford it anyway, so. Right, I was a, yeah, there, <laughs> I, we had no choice. And I have this idea that, you know what, we can do these things ourselves. So that's what led to grafting. Um, why did we graft the vines ourselves? To start with, um, we started with it because vines cost $3.50 a piece. You're putting in 15 to 1800 an acre, do the math over 40, it's a lot of dollars. Um, Susie Gagne said, no, I can show you how to graft. And she showed me her little greenhouse um, and this little grafting machine she had, this amazing grafting machine from Germany. It's such a perfect Omega, German piece of equipment. Grafter, yeah. <laughs> and um, she said, you can do this. So I built a greenhouse. We put in all this beautiful bottom heat. And the first year, uh, we grafted 10,000 vines. Mm -hmm. And about 90% of them took that we planted. Wow. Um, so Sarah Jane's block was planted all by vines that we grafted ourselves for about 87 cents a piece. And it was a big number. That's like, wow. So mm -hmm. to me, that's a good explanation of like how we did this was um, we could have gone, you know, normally spend 350 a plant, but we took that and now we were able to put in trellis because we saved the money on the plants. And that's how we were able to bootstrap that into um, planting this place, um, doing it ourselves. And what was cool about that is it originally started as we were saving money. Mm -hmm. But what turned out is we started, I, I was reading this book called Great Domains of Burgundy. It's a really cool book. 
and, and I'm hoping I got that name right because I think that's what it is. That's what's in my mind. Um, but it was a, it's a, a review of 100 different domains in Burgundy. And it would talk about very in depth about their winemaking and their viticulture practices. And everybody said, before phylloxera, we used to do mosal selection, which basically is you look at your plants that are growing well in your place, you cut them off, stick them in the ground, and that's how you create the rest of your vineyard. And we were very much at that time, it was all about clones. Everyone was talking about clones of mm -hmm. Pinot Noir. And, you know, Dijon clones were getting big back then. And everyone was talking about that, and we were starting to plant by clone. And then um, I was reading all this Mistal selection. I'm like, you know what? We can just take cuttings of our vines and plant them in our vineyard. We don't have to be saying like all 115 is the same. We can look at this from the old world perspective of Mistal selection. Look at those plants that are doing well, propagate them through the rest of our vineyard. So that's what we did from that point forward. We had this kind of, uh, this, I think of as an epiphany, was let's look at the plants that are doing well, irregardless of what they are in clone and cut those, graft them, put them into the new blocks. And that way what we're getting is, is this kind of heterogeneity in the block, this, this, this wide range of clonal material mm -hmm. that's doing well here. And we're getting that kind of throughout the entire vineyard is this kind of muscle selection. So when you taste a wine that's different from Abby's block, it's not because of the clone. It's because of the place. Because the clones are all these kind of weird mishmash stuff that we liked throughout these vineyard blocks. So that's what you're tasting is place, not clone. Sure. So, so the challenge yeah. with that, though, is occasionally <coughs> we'll have some, because we also grafted some Gruner Veltliner, which our Gruner Veltliner that we grafted ended up at Raptor Ridge's vineyard. So if you've tasted their Gruner Veltliner, um, and then we had some Riesling, but you would occasionally will have, you know, a Riesling plant. Like when it finally comes to fruit, you'd have a Riesling plant or two or a few in, you know, interspersed. Mm -hmm. And so, but I mean, it's... It's, it was our way, it was what yep. we did, it was our choice at the time, and I think I would still stick with that. I don't I know totally that it would change it, yeah. And the other downside is is that you know, you're know you not this, you're not this we're, we weren't in a position where we could just go boom, slam 40 <laughs> acres in the ground, and then you're well on your way, and like in five years you're a well-known <clears throat> winemaker being written up in Wine Spectator, you know, all of these things. We were really slow on the scene because we only made uh, wine from the fruit that, there was the very first year before we had fruit come on, that we purchased some fruit from Myrto Vineyard. That didn't and turn we, out well. <laughs> <laughs> But we made a little, I think we made a barrel, right? It was yep, a barrel we did. of wine. Yep. Um, and so we did that once, but aside from that, we only ever made wine from our own vineyard up until, what was it, 2000, uh, 2008, 2009. Nine. 2009 was the first year that we, um, so from 2002 to 2009, it was all just what we grew. Mm -hmm. And then what the next, you know, the next block that would come online. And so it's been a slow game for us. Once again, that humility and the lesson in patience, right? Um, but I don't know that I would have done it any differently. Uh, you know, nope. I think, yeah. I, I, what I love about it is we, we plant every vine ourselves. We, we put in every bit of trellis. This is our place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, with with all with, the, with all of the beautiful people yeah. that also mm -hmm. are a part of Corte Terre and have been a part of Corte Terre, you know, that's a, that's the other thing is their you know their family whether they, you know, our longest time employee was 14 years, um, and usually when they leave they're leaving to go back home. Mm -hmm. They want to go back home. They want to spend time with family. Apparently, you know, women here are uh, not, they're not, good. they're not as good as the, as the women home, so um, anyway, either, that way, a couple times. either way, um, it's, 
it's uh, it's been wonderful to see the people and just continue to stay in touch with them mm -hmm. and you know we we've never viewed people as seasonal in fact that yeah. put us in in the the red a lot of the time because we knew they had rent to pay we knew they had families mm -hmm. to pay so it wasn't like oh you finished picking well we're done with you we would then try to find things for them to do yeah. during the winter so they, there could be some consistency but then also the beauty of longevity mm -hmm. and that's how you treat a family member mm -hmm. so you sacrifice to help them um, and then in turn when the season is really hard and you know it's you know 14 15 16 hour days then they're sacrificing to help us mm -hmm. and so looking out for us yeah I mean, our folks look out for us there's no doubt about it no for sure so. it's really cool yeah, so one, one thing about it, in the development of it, I just want to bring, like, when we first moved in here, Lisa, you, she grew up in the city, and I grew up on a farm, and the house was very meager, and I said, Lisa, I promise you, in four years, based on that business plan, we'll be able to build a house. It'll be awesome. It's going to be great. So, um, about five years in, we did. If we had enough money, I said, you know what? We've stowed away enough money, and we could build a house, or we could... And at the time, we were making wine at some other folks' places, uh, or we could build a winery. And Lisa said, we came here to make wine, we should build a winery. So in 2004, we built this place. And, and downstairs was finished, uh, you know, or as finished as it could be ready for crush. Mm -hmm. This wasn't finished up here for another two yeah. years. But it, it was amazing to me. It's like, you know what, that's, that's like how we're a team, right? It's like, you know, it's... It's like build a winery. Not you know, it wasn't about her. It was about that. You know, and it was that was pretty amazing. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Twelve years later, we built. Fifteen years later, we built a house. Right? Times three. Times three. Just do the math. What about selling wine? How was the, how was it when you started actually had a product to sell? How did that work? I remember that. We were so small. It was so easy. Like, you know what? Uh, I, I don't know how long you've been here, but Red Fox Bakery used to be mm -hmm. and was created by Jason and Lori Furch. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy because I had just had our youngest daughter, who's now 16, Abby. And I remember, Scott, it was Valentine's Day, maybe. Mm -hmm, maybe. And you were like, let's go out to the coast. And so we stayed at this nice resort. Uh, for one oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. And he was giving me a break, so he got up really early with Abby so that I could sleep in. And he went to some place for coffee, and this was a place that Lori and Jason in Lincoln had, City. In Lincoln City. And so anyway, when they finally got into the town and the community, well, somehow the conversation was we're thinking about moving to McMinnville. So they came, they created this incredible bakery, uh, best bread, best everything. So they had invited us. They were like, well, come down and pour your wine out of our, you know, out of our bakery. And I remember doing that, and one of the most beautiful people is, uh, you know, of the wine industry, who unfortunately is no longer with us, is Bryce Bagnall. Bryce was this, uh, you know, oh, you Amazing know, I, I miss him. I miss him. I miss his energy. He had a lightness of him and laughter. And, and I remember I was pouring, we were pouring down mm -hmm. at the bakery. And this was after he'd already had his diagnosis, and he was starting to, it was affecting him physically. So he had this really cool, um, you know, kind of, a wheelchair that could kind of, you know, stand mm -hmm. him up a little bit, and um, but he saw our sign. Apparently, he had dinner reservations at Nick's. He saw <clears> our <throat> sign, took a left, <laughs> came in to to see us, and he's like, "Oh, I had to come in here and taste your wine." And, and I remember that was the oh, thing. Is, I remember him asking us, "Is like, well, so how do you plan on selling this?" <laughs> 
we're like, you're right here. <laughs> but we, you know, so in the beginning, it was relatively easy because we had very few cases to sell. And there was somebody, you know, I remember, you know, having Abby, baby, on the hip down in the, you know, the love shack at the bottom of the hill. And uh, you were gone, you were out of town, but I remember you calling me, right? And he's like, okay, so I just got a call from these two guys, they're at the Linfield football game, <laughs> but they've heard about our wine and they want to come and taste. And I was like, <laughs> so I'm like running around trying to clean the kitchen. You know, I had to get dressed, you know, in something that was like, you know, not not mom gear. I had to got the baby on the hip the whole time. And, and they came in and I poured wine for them, and um, they ended up being some longtime customers of ours. And I think he bought like. He bought something, and then it was it was Lloyd Town who owns a quarry. And we needed uh, rock for the road, and so we negotiated this trade. Yeah. Then we didn't have to pay. He took wine, and then he gave us rock for our road. And I mean, this is—I don't know if it still if it still happens that way these days. But I mean, that's kind of how, how yeah. it happened. We just started selling, and then uh, I remember we we got our first distributor in Oregon, and. I thought, you know, distribution, everyone gave these horror stories, hard to find and all this. Um, so I called up, I just, I, I said, you know, I called these guys up, Lemma Wine Company at the time, and he said, I'll be there tomorrow. So try your wines up. And he signed us up that day. I'm like, oh, this distribution thing, it's easy. <laughs> well, no, but it was for a little while because we would have distributors come in these yeah. doors and come walking in and they'd be, hey, you Sign know, you I'm up. from Georgia and, you know, I'm starting a distributor. Right. And I'd really, and I'd be like, yeah, great, all right. And we'd sign up and they'd sell a lot of wine for us. And so there was a time when, it, you know, and then you just, it kind of sets the, you know, at least that's what you think is, oh, this is going to be easy. And then I don't know if it's the industry that shifted or the reality of the industry mm -hmm. finally hit us, but yeah, it is work. And um, just because you make it, they do not necessarily just come. Yep. And so that's where you have to shift and you have to, uh, it, pivoting really is more like it. You have to pivot mm -hmm. to not only be able to it, embrace all of the beauty of why we got into this industry, which was the farming, it's got its creative. It's got its creative outlet for in regards to the winemaking, mm -hmm. um, the relationships that we have here, and then you have to pivot into this mindset of you know selling selling wine. That's when it becomes a business. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, once again, business model you want to follow, right? It's like, but I mean, so the key is we're also really trying to develop direct sales here um, and creating a good experience for people to come out to. Um, I think we do a, a great, I think when people come out here, it's um, very educational. So we try to spend a lot of time talking about why Pinot Noir, why is it special, why these blocks, why does it come through? Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's definitely a focus is making sure that we get people out here it is a little bit of a lift. It's down a gravel road, um, but I really do think it's something special and unique. We're not a tasting room that's on the you know the next one down the line. Mm -hmm. People come out here; they want to see something different. We try to have you know educated folks working here who have the love of the place too. Yeah, that's one thing that I think too is just the the the, the people that we've been fortunate enough mm -hmm. to that they've come and knocked on our door, and then we've been fortunate enough to see. How wonderful they are mm -hmm. to bring them on board mm -hmm. and the gifts that they bring individually and then allowing them to shine in their own light and I think you know that's that's kind of the, the challenge from the business side is that um, you know trying not to, to, to micromanage it and that was probably the hardest thing for me because this is 
this is our blood and sweat. And so, you know, wanting things to be done a certain mm -hmm. way, but then, then realizing over time the beauty of stepping back and allowing people to shine and do what they do and to impart what they do in their own way as long as the story mm -hmm. is, is shared and um, the authenticity still remains. And so we've just been very fortunate with the people that, that have been uh, interested in joining our family. Sure. And, yep, yeah. no doubt. Let's talk about the name Corded Terre, uh, as my bad pronunciation goes there. And where did that come from? You want to tell a story? I'll tell a story. <laughs> so um, we originally were going to call ourselves or define ourselves as Lone Oak um, Farm, mm -hmm. which is the farm that Scott grew up on in Minnesota. And so we were going to transfer that name here. And as you're driving up, there is that one Lone Oak that you see off to the left that really is quite picturesque. It's spread out. It's beautiful. Um, and then, and it was interesting because every time we would go to a dinner party in the wine industry or go hang out amongst our peers, the advice was constantly, you need to license trademark, license trademark, license trademark. And um, finally, we were getting to the point where we uh, were moving toward label. She's being kind. And Scott, <laughs> Scott had put it on the, the very, very backward. It might have fallen off the stove, right? Yeah. And, he, uh, and anyway, so he finally moved forward to doing the licensing and the trademarking. And um, come to find out, Mandavi, just like a few months prior. Three weeks. Yeah. Oh, was it three weeks? Yep. Uh, so three weeks earlier, had licensed and trademarked the name Lone Oak. And so um, we were waiting for the branch to hit us, you know, or the, the strike of lightning, like, okay, how will we move forward and define ourselves? So when we dug the pond, it was interesting because we brought in uh, Matt Peel to give us a bid on what it would cost to dig the pond. Mm -hmm. And I remember you, we were in Canada mm -hmm. at the time, and, um, and anyway, so he gave us this bid that it was, I think it was something like $25,000 yep. or something. That's what it was. And <laughs> and then Scott said, tell me this is Canadian. Apparently the, <laughs> the exchange rate was, high. <laughs> was like in our favor at the time. And he said, no, it's 25. And so at that point, you know, being the good Scottishman that he is, we, uh, there was a place called Mac Rental in town that you could call them up and they would deliver a massive excavator down to your door. <laughs> and as the guy's getting out of his big truck and backing it off, and tossing you the keys saying, do you, do you need a crash course? And it's like, yeah, how do you start it? You know? <laughs> but then he would drive it up and he dug this pond that, um, that uh, looked more like a crater. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and, but that was our pond for a while, right? And still waiting for the, you know, what is the lightning? What's, you know, how are we going to define ourselves? And so at some point I was going to extend Rennell's block up. And so there was a rock that used to stick out of the ground about this far. <coughs> so, you know, of course we start, we start digging at it, you know, and digging and digging and digging. And finally I'm like, this thing is connected to the center of the earth. But when you sat on it, it was this massive rock, right? When you sat on it, it was in the shape of a heart. So I was like, well, look at this. This is in the shape of the heart. And it was like, how beautiful this is. And I don't think that we had defined ourselves as of yet. So. No, no. And then um, we had a friend come over who, you know, who knew there's a, there's a skill and an art to throwing dirt. But so he's one of these skilled and artful, you know, people. And he came and he was like, are you ever concerned that your dog might not be able <laughs> to It was like out? sheer cliff. <laughs> was like, you know, I could come up and I could bring my machine. Like we could taper the edges off a bit and make it look more natural. And you're like, great. So when he was coming, it was Don Rizzo, mm -hmm. I said to Scott, um, 
And as he listens, you know, as I realize that like, he's got this, this, um, this list, we have this listening communication. Uh, 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 I don't, like it's whatever the dances that, that we go into regarding this, that sometimes we hear things, sometimes we don't, sometimes we heard it this way. But I said to him, like, listen, be sure he doesn't dig the rock up. Like, leave the rock. So, um, and apparently some, the translation got lost or, you know. I like, forgot. Yeah. <laughs> so he, Don came and he was digging the pond and then he, he messages Scott or calls him and says, hey, and I saw you guys are trying to dig this rock out. So I flipped it up and he goes, what do you want me to do with it? And Scott's like, put it back. Uh, I was like, don't move. <laughs> because we're going to put it right back how it was. So anyway, he flipped it out. But the cool thing about it was, is that when he flipped this massive boulder out of the earth, it's in the shape of a heart from two different directions. And so it sits down by the pond and um, I convinced, personally, I think it's one of the best places in Oregon to kiss, but uh, did not make the book. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so then that's when we started looking at how does this define us and uh, kind of ran through, decided to go with the French version of Heart of the Earth. Um, and that we feel it's not only just representative of, um, you know, the, the rock and the story, but it's the good stewardship of the land, you know, uh, and so that's, that's our namesake, and I, I love it because, you know, it fully represents what's happening here within this now just under 100 acres, you know, uh, of, and we absolutely love what we do. And yep. When I saw that thing, and I got that call, I, was on the, I remember I was right up on the top of the hill, and I totally, I can like picture it in my mind because it was like so, like I was in such fear when I heard it. Scott, I got that rock up for you. What do you want me to do? I'm like, oh my God, don't move. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm running down the hill and I see it and it's a heart-shaped boulder. And I'm like, I am clearly the luckiest man on the planet right now because I go to Lisa and like, look what I did. It's perfect. It's this heart-shaped rock. But at that time, I mean, it's like, I, I looked at that like, there's something else going on. I mean, I, I've been lucky my life, but I'm not that lucky. There was something else going on that this heart-shaped boulder came out of the earth that should have been cracked into a million pieces, but it's this heart-shaped boulder that is base of volcanic soil crusted with sedimentary soil that is a heart shape that is this beautiful, like, abstract design that is so representative of everything we're doing that that cannot just be by chance. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. That's awesome. That's one of the better wondering name stories we've ever heard, I have to tell you. That's, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, so tell me what it means, what uh, a wine labeled Oregon or Willamette Valley uh, means to you. Oh, it means everything. I think that, uh, um, you know, Oregon, what is happening in you know, and at least for me in the Willamette Valley, because I know there's varietals that are being grown that are differently, but what's happened in the North Willamette Valley and the Willamette Valley, um, you know, to me there's, there's a handful of places that you can grow Pinot Noir well. And I'm, I'm not going to say that one place is better over the other, and it's not to say that there are other areas in the world that they're, they're starting to produce nice wines, but, um, you know, I think that, that we live in such a, 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 a great area of not just being able to produce phenomenal, cool climate driven, even with the change in climate, mm -hmm. we still get these really beautiful, cool climate influences on our wines without having to go to great lengths of elevation 
or take it in so close to the coast that you're on these super steep slopes. And so um, I think I think that you know that's what it means. It means that there's um, there's there's a, a history of the the integrity that's gone into uh, you know all the way from David Lett uh, determining that this was the varietal that you could grow here, uh, Pinot Noir, not. Not to say that, I mean, I, I do believe that Pinot Noir is our benchmark varietal and will continue to be our benchmark varietal. Um, and not to say that there aren't other varietals that people can't pursue. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and I don't know, that's, to me, it's like quality Pinot Noir uh, that comes with great integrity um, and great uh, dedication, being the most difficult varietal to grow. Hmm. So it does take dedication and the humility to surrender to the time uh, that it takes for it to really come into its own, even not just to mention the time from when you plant to when you when you have that bottle to sell, you know, which is you know four to five years for full crop. To you know, if you put it in barrel for 18 months, you bottle it. It's got to sit for a little while to settle into itself and weave itself back together. You know, it's 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 that time that we come back to again. But um, you know, it's also the um, the longevity of how long it takes for really the vine to to tap into its true essence, which I know Ken Wright and several other winemakers refer to it as the mother rock. Um, but it's like that its true essence, and that takes time for it to really become truly defined as what it's going to be once it taps into its true essence from the earth. And with that, then then it finds its 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 beauty and its femininity and yeah. The the Willamette Valley, there's nowhere else on the planet that grows wine like we do. There's you cannot reproduce this anywhere else, and that's a little bit of that that idea of being able to preserve what our founders started is is very much true. Um, Oregon is at a bit of a crossroads right now. We are growing up. We have other influences coming in. We have other people, you know, taking our grapes to other places and making our wine. It is absolutely incumbent upon us to preserve that quality, that history, and what has made Oregon what it is. And that is, in the Willamette Valley, there is nowhere else on the planet like this. And we need to preserve that with all of our might. So, um, it, we are, we luckily stumbled in 1998 into this area. And without knowing what we were getting into and how lucky we were, and now it's our job to preserve that. And hopefully our wines show that. Hopefully our wines show that Willamette Valley, that that spirit in that. And that's what I'm. That's our. That's one of my goals is that that comes through. Of other varietals, you mentioned earlier Syrah. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about your, you have a cool climate Syrah program. Tell me about how we that do. came about. Uh... So how that came, I'm gonna tell that story. Um, so um, it was in 2004, three maybe. Um, so Lisa talked about our Georgia distributors. We had our Georgia distributor and she went and worked the market. And she came back after I guess went to a, a retailer who had a bunch of Cote Rotis open. Um, Cote Rotis basically Syrah with a little Viognier is how they typically do it, Northern Rhone. She comes back from this trip from Atlanta and says, we're planting Syrah. <laughs> I'm like, did you not get the memo? We grow Pinot Noir here. We don't grow Syrah in the Willamette Valley. 
Um, and I was staunchly against it. I'm like, are you kidding me? What am I going to do when it doesn't get ripe? Because we're a cool climate. Um, and very Pinot Noir focused. <clears throat> but we talked about it. And so eventually, I, I came around and said, all right, fine, we'll plant Syrah. We'll, we'll go ahead and do it. And if we're going to do it, we're going we're gonna to try to do it right. We're going to um, do it in a coat Rotis-ish style. So um, there were the Duver, the yeah, Mike and Patty, Patty Green. Green <coughs> Duver Vineyard, which they've been here a long time. And uh, we called up Mike and, and asked him if he had you know, flailed in, if he pruned his vineyard yet, and if he'd flailed yet. And he said, nope, it's all there on the ground. And because they had Syrah. I know that, I think that uh, Sam Tannehill used to get it. And, he might still. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. But anyway, um, I, you know, we, we went over, we cleaned up their vineyard floor, bundled it all in kind of kept it back behind the barn until it was ready to graft and we created plants from it and uh, got it in the ground. We also got a little bit of Viognier, so there's like a couple of rows of Viognier mixed in with the Syrah. And uh, it's interesting because I think as much as Scott dug his heels in on it, there was a lot of like, uh, you know, morning coffee arm wrestling going on over whether or not to do this. And um, he... I think that it's become one of his favorite wines. It, it's actually, so so it's ridiculous, right? So it's kind of annoying, right, when your wife's always right? So, so. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, but she was right. I mean, so it started out 2009, amazing. That was our first vintage of that wine. And it was this just lean uh, iron and kind of this almost kind of animally blood quality to it, which is just so cool. Um, and it turned out great. And then we started making our rosé using Syrah and Pinot Noir, which is like crazy. I remember somebody called it, said it was, you're just bastardizing rosé. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you're a real rosé purist. Um, I thought rosé was bastardizing. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Like, you pretty much like put anything into rosé, so. Yeah. So, but it creates this rosé, which is amazing because it has this kind of spice. And, and what, one thing I love about wine is it, to me, it takes you back to places. Um, and my mom, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota. We had a rhubarb plants growing out in the back and strawberry rhubarb pie was mm -hmm. a thing um, that she'd make. She made the best pie crust. Um, <laughs> and um, it always reminds me of that because it's got this strawberry tone from the pinot. It's got this savoriness of the rhubarb uh, that comes out in that. And it takes me back to when I was a kid and I love that. To me, that is one of the things that just, that's one thing wine can do is it can transcend you to your mind thinking of stuff that, of, of the past and where you've been. And um, that, that's a powerful thing. So it has this amazing spirit um, in that rosé. And then the Syrah is uh, lean and, and iron and, and just really cool. I mean, really it's, like it's savory. A, it's acid driven. And I think that was the beauty of like, you know, when you think about Syrahs, you're thinking of these like, you know, typically the experience is these high alcohol, mm -hmm. super kind of jammy, fruity wines grown in these extremely hot regions. But if you do, you know, if you did pull it and put it into a cool climate viticulture, then it's going to have those lovely cool climate uh, aspects, mm -hmm. that, the, the nuance of the acid. Um, but you'll still get receive that pepper and the spice that's there. But the you know the acid, which then in turn makes it so uh, so prime to to age. And then as you age, so so these cut rotis that I was I was tasting were, were very old and. 
you know, it was it was the it was the fairy tale in the bottle. So you open it up, and and as as the wine is allowed to open, and you're enjoying it. I mean, it's like the the sweaty horse, you know, riding through the the, the wet forest, right, and the moss, mm -hmm. and then the wet leather, right, that is coming off of the saddle. And um, to me, it, so you get all these earth components and. So I mean that was that was the nuance. I came back with that fairy tale still, you know, in in my heart, and said, you know, I, I think we could do something like this. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, I'll be able to live long enough for those wines that have been produced to be able to taste them in that state where they're ready to to share that the fairy tale, right? The yep. So I've taken this as completely on my own now. We're expanding that block. We're adding Syrah. Um, I'm all in. It's not my idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wise woman. Right. So let's go back a little bit to we were talking about earlier. You uh, you mentioned um, not heeding Myron Redford's advice to not get into <laughs> together. How have you made it work? Uh, working together, being married, mm -hmm. living here uh, over the years. What's what's your secret? Oh, there's I mean, no secret. Being a master secret. burning the wick at both ends and, and not burning out, so I think, has been the, the hard balance because yeah. we, um, we've, we've kept our day jobs. Uh, um, when I transitioned here, I had been selling real estate in Colorado, and after spending time with Brian and Jill O'Donnell, such beautiful people from Belmont, mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, friends, uh, they were like, Lisa, you should get your real estate license because no realtor here knows how to find quality vineyard property. So um, interestingly enough, I followed that uh, advice and um, it was quite a struggle the first year because I needed to build, you know, there's, there's a time period within which you have to build credibility. Mm -hmm. But after that year, I remember Kevin Chambers, who is to me just such a such a, a beautiful beautiful human being and i don't even know that he knows how much he's influenced my life but he you know from digging pits on our property and saying i wouldn't walk there i would run there uh, because it's a it's a great property and i know the price of it and it's, it'll be good for you guys and so um, all the way to advising which books i should be reading uh, to to expand my knowledge in viticulture and organic practices and biodynamics because he was at all three but but then when he got to the point where he began to refer business to me because mm -hmm. I think when people are looking to get into the wine industry mm -hmm. they go to somebody who understands like okay what does it cost to develop mm -hmm. what does it cost to do this you know what is the time frame all of these things right and so he would start to refer so I started selling vineyard and winery property and I uh, you know, I gave Mike McLean a good run, run for his money. He was the other real estate broker who's down in a little bit further in Albany, I think, uh, selling vineyard and winery property. And uh, so I helped Robert Britton find his property. I helped Bill and Donna uh, uh, from Winderley find their property. Um, I helped the Bjornsons find their property. Um, uh, the Becks also. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked uh, in several. Um, Several people at Raptor Ridge, I helped them find their property, literally like right down the street from where they lived, which was, you know, I think a really lovely thing for them. And so, and the beauty of that, so I got out of that after my second child came along, um, James Fry, Trisadum Winery, I found mm -hmm. his, I found um, two of his properties 
all three of his three of his properties. I found his original estate where his home is, and in then I found him his Ribbon Ridge property that originally only one of the pieces was for sale, and we were able to find and and get the owner to sell this adjacent piece, and mm -hmm. so those three pieces, and so. To work with one, the, the upside. I remember Kevin sitting me down and saying, Lisa, you have to be very careful because what you and Scott do is not the norm. You know, what, when you sit there and say, oh, well, you can do it yourself, it's not the norm. And when I say do it yourself, it's been like, it's not just been the grafting and the planting ourselves and managing our own vineyard and making our own wine and never hiring that out, but to the website building, like mm -hmm. Scott, built our website, you know, to the... To we the, built this building. We built this building. My sister and I laid the wood floors. And <clears throat> so he said, you have to be really careful because people coming in, it takes a unique individual to do what you guys are doing and what you have done. So you have to be really careful. And so then I shifted and I would spend an entire, my first two hours with the customer talking them out of getting into the industry. <laughs> do you realize it's going to cost you this much money? Mm -hmm. Do you realize how much time it's going to be? Do you realize that if you're not paying somebody to get out and do this for you, you have to physically get out there and do it yourself? You know, so I would spend a good amount of time talking them out. And if, after all of that, and a lot of them would say, wow, there's a lot more here to think of than I thought. But then if they were so committed and showed up the next day for the next appointment, it was like, okay, let's go walk property. <laughs> and I loved that job. I, I loved that job so much because I was able to walk property with like, I got the honor of, of walking property with Robert Britton, mm -hmm. right? You know, he being the amazing, you know, uh, petite Sarah uh, guru from California, from uh, Stag's Leap, coming up to plant uh, Pinot Noir and to walk land with him and to talk geology and to talk about and tap into his infinite wisdom about varietals and clones and geology and rocks and, and then how shocked I was when he bought his big pile of rocks that the, the vineyard was struggling because the, pe the people that owned it prior really didn't have the wherewithal to, but how then he took it and turned it around mm -hmm. to witness that um, all the way to the Bjornsons and then to see like, oh, I knew that that was a quality piece of property and could produce ultra premium Pinot Noir, like I felt it mm -hmm. as I was walking it. And that's why I would show it to people, you know, like this is a really great piece of property. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to taste Atticus's wines, but I helped them find that property, two lovely human beings, Guy Inslee and Zimena Orego. And um, to be able to taste their wines, we just went to a paella party this last summer where we got to taste some vertical vintages of theirs and like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew this could be such a beautiful place. And then to see the differences of geology and to then witness phylloxera, right? And how phylloxera and different soil types, like if you're on anti or, uh, uh, you know, if you're on more devigorized soils, how phylloxera is going to wipe you out much, much more quickly. But how on certain soil types, there's a possibility that with this pest, you can create a symbiotic relationship by, you know, farming organically. and taking care of the land so that the vine is strong, that then it can still take care of the pests in a way. So to be able to witness that, uh, Bill Wittenberg's property, which I know the Black family, which is Grace Vineyards, purchased. Mm -hmm. um, and to see them like come in and what they did to, to take something that was already there, like they already knew that the potential, the essence that comes through in the finished product was there, but then they came and laid it out in this herringbone pattern that was incredible um, to, uh, switching over from uh, conventional farming practices to biodynamic and to then witness from a distance how that's been so mm -hmm. but I mean I worked really hard and then my second child who's now 11 years old when she 
was born, it was just there. We had we were at maybe 2,800 cases or just under 2,000 yeah. cases oh, yeah. at that time, and some, something had to give because I couldn't give that everything. Um, but the beauty of it is, is that I would close something like you know Hawksview Vineyard, which was originally. Um, uh, Jack Kemp, mm -hmm. uh, such a, a low, he's unfortunately no longer with us, but what a lovely, lovely man. And um, that's now since been sold to a California winery. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, to sit there and um, to have been a part of the industry in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember, you know, him telling me and giving me advice about trying to find that balance. And I knew something had to give, so stepping out when my second child was born. And the beauty of being able to embrace like raising chickens and raising babies and selling wine, right? And still, even though it felt like a lot of wine, it still wasn't that much wine, you know, now in perspective, the perspective of it all. But no, so keeping the day jobs and really, you know, knowing, being willing to sacrifice both ends of the wick, mm -hmm. because that's what we did in the beginning for, yeah. for a good 10, 15 years. We would work our day jobs and come home and work this. And um, and then and then being able to step back and, and breathe a little bit. And now we're at this sweet spot where you know I I do this and then I do some other things that really feed my soul mm -hmm. and uh, trying to really bring that balance back in and make up for the loss of balance in the beginning. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, we we definitely had to go all in. I I always go back to um, when we got married. We did a video. Luckily, her. Her dad paid for a videographer, and my mom came on, and she gave this great advice. Um, she was an amazing woman, um, and she said, "Marriage isn't always 50/50. Sometimes it's 90/10, and not in your favor. And you have to understand that that's part of the the flow. And it's been true. And I think I probably get more of the 90 than I do the 10 because that's just kind of what happens. And and so marrying a, a a woman who's a great supporter is a really great thing. Um, but do realize that it's not always, you know, it's not this, you know, scoreboard that you were trying to work to this end goal and keeping the bigger picture in mind, I think is extremely important than like getting focused on that day to day, like, boy, I gotta, I gotta have that brand new car, you know, the old truck is okay, you know, because we need a, another vineyard, another block, you know, so we gotta buy barrels. So, Having the perspective of, you know, what is important, um, you know, so we definitely for, well, no, forgo I, things no. to, to, to get to and there. I, and that's interesting because the 9010 translates to the relationship with the wine industry as well. And sometimes the 9010 is not in your favor. Right. But um, what has always been 9010 in our favor has been the relationships. And, and just kind of getting back to that is I remember very early on coming and we were just struggling like our idea of a date night which would happen like maybe once every two weeks was going down to moonlight pizza, moonlight pizza. And, getting a pitcher of beer <laughs> pizza and sitting and catching a movie for really cheap i still love that but then i remember like scott and annie show like they enjoyed it enjoyed in, in uh, invited us to uh, uh enjoy a dinner that they would have with friends at red hills um provincial mm -hmm. and they you know we went there for the first time and had dinner and it was lovely conversation relationships and to spend time with the people that own the restaurant there, super lovely people, and uh, and um, and then the bill came, and I remember being very mindful of what I was ordering <laughs> because I knew how, what a super tight, tight, tight budget we were on, and and then um, you know, and then what happened was because all this wine got ordered as well, it was like all the men just threw their credit cards down, and I was just like, oh, you know, having this moment, and then they they invited us afterwards, like at the end of that dinner, 
well, we do this almost every Friday. <laughs> Not going to happen. We'll see you guys in the <laughs> We'll save up. <laughs> that's, I mean, the beauty of that, though, is then we, we polished up our cooking skills and Scott right. smoked an awesome pork loin. And so then we started saying, hey, dinner night at yeah, our come house. Over here. <laughs> so, which was even better to sit. I remember there was this old rotted deck on the back of the house down below. And... You know, you were never sure which board like might just sit here. Like, <laughs> but we would be there with our friends, like staring up at the stars, having just filled our bellies with a beautiful meal, and and uh, staring up at the stars and and tasting wines and and uh, allowing the the experiences of the industry to unfold organically mm -hmm. over the evening as we watch stars shoot across the sky. And I mean, that's the ninety ten in our favor for sure. Yep. Right. So, uh, where do you see Corte Terror in the future? Where do you look when you look five, ten years down the road? Where do you uh, hope to see it? Well, I, I hope to see us um, continue, frankly, to do what we're doing the, of making wines of the place, um, having our daughters grow up in this beautiful place, um, trying to continue to be authentic and, and you know sell our wine and into people who understand what we're trying to do. Um, I, I want to continue to be more part of the industry from a, you know, helping, you know, with, with like Willamette Valley Wineries Association and different things to continue to help solidify those, that history thing that we we're talking about. Um, maybe our little one, she talks about wanting to do this one day. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, I. I think that the importance is in the future of Corte Terre. Uh, I don't know, I mean, I look at it as the children, uh, their experience being a part of the industry, but also eventually passing the torch. That's the hope. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't dial that in when you're asking or when, the, you know, when, when, uh, when they're taking their first breath, like all of a sudden they're blessed with it and the stars are across their forehead that there will be a winemaker. So. Um, but I would love to see that. It's, to me, it's the land that brings me the greatest joy. Like, I love the land. I love being here and being a part of the agricultural aspect of it and then the relationships that um, have been built in mm -hmm. the industry and just to continue on with that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't see us growing to be uh, a huge winery by any means. It's not this great, you know, we've got to be 10,000 cases or 15,000 cases. That's, that's not it. I think it's, once again, I'm to, that, I'm to that stage in my life. It's about finding balance, mm -hmm. and I think we could grow a little bit bigger, but, um, you know, still keep... Not much. The, not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, you know what, we're just under 5,000 cases now, and that kind of ebbs and flows depending on the vintage, of course. Mm -hmm. But there's a possibility of taking it up to, you know, maybe, you know, maybe 7,500 cases yeah. at some point, but I, that's... That's about as big as we want to get. Mm -hmm. And you know, I embrace small winery. I um, I emulate it when I work the market. It's it's a challenge to compete. I think it's becoming more and more difficult as things are becoming more globalized. Mm -hmm. um, but I also feel that that um, the authenticity of what we offer here is is desired by most. It's mm -hmm. a you know the experience that you have here is um, more authentic, it's more generous in a lot of ways because the people that are pouring the wines for you are really, truly connected mm -hmm. to what's happening at Corte Terre, so, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. I'm, I'm curious, you're looking at roughly 20 years in the industry now, how have your consumers changed in that time? What are the expectations they have now they didn't used to have and, 
and what is it that you, like you say, what is it that you deliver that they're asking for? Well, um, it's interesting because I think that's, that's a big topic that, that gets mulled around not just by us, but also some of our peers that are in the same boat in regards to size. Things are shifting here in the industry. I think that um, the influence of California coming in and, you know, some good, uh, obviously, uh, you know, because I do believe that um, uh, you can't get the word out enough about what's happening in Oregon. and. Um, but it's also, you know, there's, there's the concept of experiences, mm -hmm. um, this whole idea of now it's all about the experience. And to me, in my opinion, um, is that I don't know that we need to change and go that route. Uh, because uh, it's when you come here, it's not just somebody standing behind the bar saying, and this is our Pinot Noir, mm. you know. And that's always been that way. It's sure. when people pour the wines, they, they understand the beauty and the, the depth of what's being poured, and so they share that along with it. And um, and so initially we talked about like adding some experiences or kind of getting on that bandwagon, but I think people want to come and they want to have a, a place where they can have an honest conversation mm -hmm. um, that's not an ego-driven conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, um, that's, that's a, that's that creates an environment where, where, where within which they can feel comfortable asking questions and they feel that maybe what little knowledge they have is enough for that but then they can they can evolve based mm -hmm. on the, the the questions that they ask and so that's that's the that's the type of experience that we want to have here i think we've always had experience driven yeah. things i mean i think we didn't call it that mm -hmm. but we were we've never been this place of you know here's pino 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 you know go have you know your party or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's has always been about coming out here and experiencing the place and understanding what's different. So I actually think we're ahead of the curve well, on that. Well, and it's, it's had to be that because we have always based everything that we do here on referral. Obviously, we're not easy to find. <laughs> the beauty of it is, is that if you if you find us, you wanted to be here. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's, that's like 90% of the battle right there. Like when they come walking <clears> in the door, you know that mm -hmm. they, they want something. So we've never been, uh, we've always been extremely, very generous with our time. So if somebody sits and they want to have a conversation for two hours about our wine, we're more than happy to facilitate that conversation. Mm -hmm. As is Jacques, as is Stephanie, as is mm -hmm. you know Emily Lynn. And so the beauty of that is is that um, you know we're able to have these these incredible authentic conversations. Um, and anywhere from wow, I was in uh, in Germany and these rieslings, and have it be about the riesling, mm -hmm. about the Syrah. You know, the other day I had the, um, he's the, the director, the new director of the zoo, which was like, I was so excited to have him here. And I'd been hanging out with him, talking to him before, before he even disclosed who he was. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, because we had the raptors, it was right around harvest, and there were a lot of raptors flying around, and then Scott was also using his drone to keep the smaller birds, and he was kind of giving a demonstration. And um, I was explaining how um, the Audubon Society had approved us last year as a property that is uh, able for them to bring their birds of prey that have been rehabilitated to release. Oh, that's cool. And it's, oh, I mean, that's, so the, when I say these other side projects that are not necessarily directly connected to wine, but are connected mm -hmm. to wine, um, you know, and that was such an honor for them to approve the property, but then to be a part of the release of the raptors on the property and to have my 11 year old or even her entire school come out you know, and experience these raptors up close. And then, you know, it's, it's, 
it's an educational process to be able to have an appreciation for agriculture mm -hmm. and what we have here in the Willamette Valley. And I'm not just talking about wine. Um, I'm talking mm -hmm. about all of the beauty and the abundance, mm -hmm. really, that the Willamette Valley has to offer. Um, we have to take care of it. We have to protect it. Um, we have to maintain the integrity and the authenticity of, mm -hmm. of it um, and making sure that even in regards to the wine component that that people aren't able to come across and um, taint or, or mm -hmm. pass off or whatever in regards to, to what we have to offer here because mm -hmm. it is truly, truly special. And that was my draw. I mean, when you look at it coming here to Oregon, the number of individuals that support organic, if not biodynamic, that means these people are so committed, they're mm -hmm. sacrificing, and there is um, a devotion, uh, a devotion, and almost in some instances, and dare I say, a spiritual devotion mm -hmm. to what they're connected to. So, I don't know, did I answer your question? <laughs> I don't remember what question I asked, but <laughs> it was a great answer regardless. Right, so. thank you. Um, where do you see, you talked about California influence and kind of the, the crossroads now, so where do you see the, the Oregon wine industry as you look again, as you look down five, ten years in the future, what do you see happening uh, in, the, in the near future here? I see us that we're going to codify and solidify um, exactly what we're talking about, that the industry is absolutely moving towards um, coming together to, re to continue to um, solidify what we've started. And, and, it's, and over the next five years, that's absolutely happening through um, you know, guys like Dave Adelsheim, who was the original kind of guy who put in our original labeling and content mm -hmm. um, laws working with them to help continue to, to move that forward, and that's going to happen. Um, and the industry's pulling together to make that happen, which is really great to see. Um, <clears throat> we need to continue from, from an Oregon perspective to stay together. That's one thing that I think will be a challenge because, you know, we are a very big state with a very diverse growing area, and trying to make sure that we take into consideration everybody's points of view on that mm -hmm. um, is something that we need to continue to, to work towards. Mm -hmm. um, but all parts of Oregon will benefit from you know, looking at their uniqueness of their own areas and making that their own and carving that out. Much like the Willamette Valley has done with Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. um, they will do well to do that with their own strengths, which they all have. Mm -hmm. Do you see the growth we're seeing now as like something that's going to continue? I mean, we're, we're averaging 50 to 75 new wineries a year lately. Do you see that kind of growth continuing for the foreseeable future? I can't imagine it can go like that forever, but... Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's going to continue, and I think that, that what has to... Uh, at least what I would like to see is I would like to see the Oregon um, culture remain the same. Mm -hmm. There's been such a gift of camaraderie uh, when we came on board that you could go down and Dick Ponzi was hanging out in his wine bar and you could have a conversation with him about mm -hmm. it. Um, and people like Myron Redford who, you know, I view him as, you know, one of the founding fathers, Definitely. but more of that gentle uncle that loves to hippie dance and, uh, <laughs> you know, drink into the wee hours of the morning, but that you could go to and you could have conversations and uh, and and no, I think that as uh, for us as an industry, we can't allow the outsiders coming in to change mm -hmm. that camaraderie, that um, that that's you know all boats rise together uh, philosophy or mentality, and that um, help one another. 
mm -hmm. willingness to help. Like for instance, in the situation, you know, in, in Jimmy's situation, mm -hmm. um, you know, which I think caught us all, all by surprise. I mean, I remember it was our anniversary the the, the night before, the day before, and coming back and getting that call and thinking, oh, he must have gotten into another motorcycle accident. And then to realize, oh my gosh, are you kidding me, right? Mm -hmm. And then how the only place that we knew to go was to go sit in his home mm -hmm. and just know that he was probably looking down going like, what the hell happened, right? <laughs> and, um, but that to embrace that camaraderie and the knocking on the door is a saying, hey, I really love this. What <clears throat> hey, can I walk your property? And what's going on with that? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I mean, some, some members of the community like Bryce Bagnall who would pull people together and like, taste wines and educate and let's talk about this and then he'd like huff everybody up to the top of his property and walk it you know and like talk about that or like what Dick Shea has done for years mm -hmm. right pulling these incredible winemakers together that that pull but then to continue that conversation and put our arms around each other and be like oh you're having trouble how can I help you mm -hmm. and to be of service to one another still and that's one thing that I noticed when I was when I would visit California, when I would visit Oregon wine industry, those were the things that really allowed Oregon to stand apart, mm -hmm. is that you walked in, typically the person pouring the wine for you was dusting themselves off of the tractor to come pour their wine for you. Mm -hmm. And even though that may have evolved or changed a bit, the, their, their willingness to, to give energy, to give um, information, education, like that's my hope that for Oregon, is that we maintain really what has made us unique in that, that, um, that, uh, that uh, free giving of, of, of what you have to offer to be of service to one another, so. Okay, all, right. all the questions that I have for awesome. you both, and thank you so much for all of your thank you. candid answers and time. Is there anything else I should have asked you before we go? Any final thoughts, last things you'd like to say? Um, so excited what Linfield's doing, yeah. right? And um, <coughs> the donation of the Evansats, you know, to be able to, I, I think <coughs> the growth of that is really quite amazing. And to see the evolution, like Jeff Peterson, who um, has been a longtime club member of ours, and, uh, you know, to see what he's been able to do at Linfield. Mm -hmm. And now to understand that there will be a master's program offered, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I mean, I want to sign up for it, <laughs> but that's nice, you know, because now there's a possibility that if the 11 year old does want to take this on, there's someplace close that she can, <laughs> yeah. It's been a great 20 years. Yeah, that's, it is 20 years. I know, right? Yeah. So this is our 20th anniversary this year in August. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a gift. There were times when I didn't think we were going to make it. <laughs> yeah. We have. Yeah. Yeah. So far, so good. Makes it all the sweeter at the end, right? Of course. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you both so thank much. You. Really appreciate your time, and we'll go ahead and stop. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.